market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. It's not only our special mailbag edition, but it's our post-Christmas special mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, and made a blade of Merry Christmas, is the doctor, Dr. Ian Mahati. How are you, buddy? I am very good, Captain. How are you? I'm exceptionally well, mate. We've had our Christmas dinners. We've enjoyed our, our new Christmas. We've had a good time, all that kind of good stuff. And here we are back. In fact, well, I assume that's all true because we're recording in advance, as we always do. Now, I will start with one thing, just because... Man, life sucks. And we will talk a little bit about this very, very quickly. This is a mailbag episode, but we can't go past the current events, mate. So um, first things first, we recorded our Christmas Day episode before the Sydney lockdowns. Um, Doc and I were in the same place at that point, which which was nice. Um, in the event, of course, lockdowns happened, mate, after our recording before Christmas. So if you're wondering why our last recording was in person, that's exactly why it was. But we're back recording remotely. So Doc's on one side of the Zoom camera, I'm on the other side. We are not that far apart, probably 70 odd Ks, mate, but um, that's far enough. So this is on Zoom. We're recording them locally. Hopefully no audio issues, of course, as we always say, but uh, if they are any, please do bear with us. Mate, um, I'll ask you very quickly, let's just let's just get some news out of the way. This is a mailbag episode, as I said, but lockdown obviously been and gone. You've you hope not gone yet. Hopefully, unfortunately not gone. Hopefully, maybe even by the time this goes to air, it's gone. Um, we're recording this on Monday, the 21st. Uh, Sydney had 30 cases on Sunday, 18 or 15 cases today. So if you're an optimist, hopefully that goes down. If you're not, then as the health um, experts have already said, lots of variability in those numbers and it might just be natural volatility. All of that said, mate, whether or not this is the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, um, I've got to ask you, your investing approach, you're, you're notoriously not a macro guy. I think that's that's smart. But just, just a thought, just quickly before we get into those questions on investing in the time of what could potentially be a second wave. Does it, does it, what, what shall listeners be thinking, doing, um, different, the same? Just, just your general investing thoughts uh, as we think about what might happen with this second wave in Sydney. Um, I'm not too, like, I mean, from an investing point of view, I'm not really worried about what the second, like, as I've said before, I don't invest in companies that are exposed too much to yeah. what's happening in the local economy um, you know uh, whether the economy is you know growing at six percent or three percent it really has little impact on yeah, right. on at least how I invest so it doesn't bother me that much uh, as I've said before too I look at sort of the global pictures I said two vaccines have been approved um, you know uh, probably the vaccination rate is going to be in excess of what two, three, four million per per month, mm. or maybe in, t- in the range of mm. ten million per month. So I mean, you know, uh, slowly but steadily, we are going to sort of get back to a scenario where, um, you know, I, I think COVID is going to exist, whether we like it or not. COVID is essentially, I think, a long-term phenomena, uh, and you just got to deal with it like right, we deal right, with right. everything else. So. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not terribly concerned about, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying that lockdowns don't have an impact. They do have an impact on businesses, local businesses and CN, but I'm not investing in a local business. So, um, you know, from that point of view, if I'm not investing in a local cafe or a local restaurant, yeah, or right. the, for, for, <laughs> the, the, you know, I'm not trying to make light of the fact, I mean, uh, yeah, of, totally, of the yeah, impact. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. I mean, you know, it doesn't impact investing in, I don't know, a software company that's selling yeah, software right, right. worldwide. Nice one. Um, yeah, I think I think that's right. If if you were an investor invested in other things, mate, just for our listeners who are um, who are you know probably less um, overseas focused and maybe maybe have those businesses that are exposed, 
Do, do you think is now the time to be getting out because it might get worse? Is it a time to stay because, as you rightly say, vaccinations on the way we hope that the end of 2021 looks very different either you know because there's less COVID or simply we're just we're vaccinated against or hopefully both um you know for, for those of our of our listeners who are investing in those sort of companies do you have any particular advice or thoughts um look right now not be i would not be terribly concerned largely because i mean if if you think the valuations are fair and, and they're mm-hmm. fair for the the amount of growth you're looking for in the years ahead Everything seems to be under control. Like, I mean, yes, the numbers are mm. growing or steady or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I, I think, you know, right now it seems like New South Wales Health is on top of mm. Uh, mm. everything. They're doing the contact tracing. They're doing everything. I think, you know, they, they, as I've said before, they, I think they're doing, they're pragmatically moving ahead. Uh, yeah. And uh, right now I would not be terribly concerned. I mean, it's it, it kind of is not great if, you know, these yeah. four meter square rules are back. But, I mean, that, such is the situation. So uh, I'm not terribly concerned if, if, you're, if you're investing in a local, you know, sort of in that e- economy with, um, as long as the valuations are not stretched, uh, mm-hmm. I think it's fine. That's what I think. I, I think it makes sense, mate. Yeah, I, I share the same view. I said, we won't spend too long. I share the same view. I think, as you rightly say, mate, we will be back to normal at some point. Uh, and at that point, unless these businesses go broke or have to raise more capital, profits go back to some sort of normal at some point again there are different businesses that might have longer term impacts travel of course flights um i guess there are some businesses that will have longer tails than others but equally you know even at some point they get back to normal so unless as it unless they go broke unless there's a big capital raising it, it really does make sense to look through the current issues as much as it's kind of hard to do that for many people um and of course we should say you know, I, I, we don't know how the restrictions will come out. And of course, we do also know the rest of the country, by the way, isn't affected. We don't want to make this a Sydney-centric um, podcast. We, we did try and, of course, um, think about our, our Victorian friends and, and cousins when they were going through their issues. But uh, we don't know how many how this is going to impact Christmas celebrations over the next, well, last couple of days in the terms of by the time this goes to air, but certainly the next couple of days as we record this. Um, so we are thinking of those people who didn't get to chance spend time with family and friends. We know that, of course, borders being closed when people couldn't travel to, to see family and friends. Um, and we hope that... Uh, Christmas was was uh, a good time for you and you, you managed to get through as much as you could. 2020, mate, it's been a hell of a year. We will next week spend a bit of time talking about the year back and the year forward. I, I'm almost a bit worried about that episode, mate, because I don't know how we're going to try and either A, summarise 2020 or B, say something new, but that's that's future Doc and future Scott's problems. So in any case, we'll, uh, we'll move on unless you've got any last thoughts. Oh, I don't have any last thoughts. I think, uh, yeah, again, I think, you know, stay safe. Be well. Is, is yeah, well, well, yeah, tell you what, that's the uh, that's number one, right? And wear a mask, hey? That's fair. <laughs> wear a mask, wash your hands. Yeah. All right. Let's let's go to let's go to the mailbag, mate. I, I think we need to cover that off just because it's you know not to not do so again, particularly because we pre-recorded uh, Christmas Day was was would have been a big oversight. So there you go. Hopefully, by the way, we're winning the cricket by now too. All right, uh, mate. A question from Jesse. Jesse, who's a regular correspondent. Uh, Jesse, hi Scott and Doc. Thanks for the podcast. You're welcome, Joe. My po- partner and I have just joined up with SA Share Advisor, and we're loving it so far. Over in the USA, they have dividend aristocrats. Now, that's capitalized for a good reason. And she says in brackets, companies who have increased their dividends for 25 years or more. But we don't really have the same down under, do we? Why is that? And besides the usual suspects of Solpats and Brickworks, are there any other contenders I should research? Thanks heaps, guys. Jessie. Now, Jessie, uh, in her in her Twitter handle, talks about she's part of the FIRE movement, which is financially independent, retire early, um, which is a really, really cool movement, I think. It's kind of one of those back to the future things. There are a whole group of people out there who are 
try to keep their costs as low as humanly possible, save as much as they can early, so they can be financially independent, retire early. You'll see the acronym FIRE used, which is exactly that acronym, financially independent, retire early. She's trying to, to some degree, mate, save as much as she can, put money aside and live off the dividends, which is one way to do it. Now, you're a, a guy who, who thinks differently about ways of living off your shares, and I actually will ask you about that in a second. But in the meantime, i got to say, I think it's a fair question she asks. There's the dividend aristocrats, so it is capital D, capital A. There's a, I don't know, if, it's not official, obviously. I don't know who came up with the term, but there is a sense in the US that there's a group of companies who have paid and, and or increased their dividend for 25 straight years. And so that group of companies known as kind of the dividend aristocrats, the, the group that are reliable, that have, in theory, I want to say bulletproof businesses, but pretty defensible businesses, pretty strong balance sheets, pretty committed to paying out dividends. Now, I got to say, if you'd, if you'd asked me about this without having, I mean, I knew, I knew a little bit about the answer to this question, so I wasn't exactly coming in blind, but, it, you know, the general view of the Australian economy, the Australian investment market, you've certainly made a point in the past um, off air about the, you know, Australian kind of obsession with dividends. It's actually slightly surprising to me that firstly, A, isn't a concept around dividend aristocrats, and B, there aren't that many custom companies that actually fit the bill. So... I'm not going to, well, I will, if, if you want to give a view, I will. I don't imagine you spend a lot of time thinking about dividend aristocrats and long-term dividend paying companies. Do you want to give a view on that or will I do that bit and we get to your bit in a sec? Well, okay, so a couple of different things. So I think people, the dividend aristocrats, I think the definition of what a dividend, what qualifies as the dividend is different from what we yeah. think, you know, here people want like a 5%, 6% yield with right, franking. Right, So that's part of it, right? And and then people, you know, their people will be happy with 3% yield, for example, or 2.5%, right. 3% yield. So that's, 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 I think, a big big part of the, like, I, I think that the real way to think about this, at least in my mind, is you want to invest in companies that pay a small amount of dividend early. You want to hold them, you know, if they're quality companies, they're going to grow over time. And I like to think about the dividend, not on the current net worth of those shares, but on the on the on the buy price, right? Okay, so, yeah. and, and 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 classically, I think you know that's where you get the most bang for the buck. So you yeah, basically right. get uh, capital gains, but you also yep. get substantial. Um, you know, dividends off the mm. capital that you've invested, mm. right? So, mm. you know, that's, you know, so McDonald's or a Starbucks might, mm. you know, fit, mm. uh, might have fit the bill, you know, 10 years ago, there's small dividends, uh, you know, rising, rising, rising over time. So I, I, I don't know. That's how I think about it. Are you a little bit surprised there aren't more in Australia? Though? I mean, to, again, to the sense that we, given give the sense that Australians love their dividends and we have that franking and all that kind of good stuff, I, I mean, I got to say, it's you know, if it, again, if I didn't, I know the information, so I know it's not. But it almost, I haven't really thought about it in, in depth, and it wasn't until Jesse asked the question. It's kind of a surprise to me, to some degree, that we don't have more of those dividend aristocrat companies, companies that have been just ha- had created this long term sense of, hey, we're the guys who are going to look after you here. Um, you know, it, because we love those dividends, all those things that go with it. It just, it's a surprise to me, to some degree, that. Either the business aren't thinking long term. Maybe it is, as you say, the yield is so high to start with that they have nowhere to go in a bad year. It's just, it's just as I said, I, I, you know, I would have thought a business. And, and look, Solpats, I own shares for the record, and Brickworks are two that absolutely fit that bill, and whose management have paid, as you say, a lower dividend, but also have some sense. And, and maybe this is a bit of chicken egg, but some sense that the shareholders want it and they want to provide it for their shareholders. So there is some sense the companies run specifically for that purpose. Um. Does it surprise you that we haven't got more of these types of companies in Australia that were just simply investor relations teams, you know, purely purely cynically, 
haven't tried to be a dividend aristocrat just for the benefit of being able to say, hey, buy our shares, you know, we're, we're the sort of company, don't sell them. Um, I mean, you would have thought if, you, if you're a long-term owner, manager, you'd want these people to be shareholders, right, who aren't going to go anywhere, who are going to stick with you. Um, that kind of is the Solpats group, but it's maybe a surprise to me in the Australian obsession with dividends that we haven't got many more businesses trying to do the same thing. Uh, well, it doesn't surprise me, actually. Like, I mean, okay. here's the thing, right? So most of our big dividends come from banks, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe some of the, some of it comes from miners, right? And there are a few mm-hmm. others in the, you know, so basically financial industry in general. But... Uh, like most of the dividend aristocrats, re- really these are global businesses, right? Mm, and mm. we don't have that many global businesses. I mean, we are a very right. small equity market, right? I, I think what people don't need to realize mm. uh, is the Australian equity market is 2% of the global equity market, right? So, I mean, it's mm. you can't find everything here. And if you're trying to find everything here, you're basically going to hit a dead wall. Like, you know, you're going to hit mm. a brick wall, right? I mean, mm. it's like, again, like uh, the, my analogy for this is like basically... F- Fishing, fishing in the pond, to, uh, expecting to catch a tuna or something, right? You know, it, it's it's the, the the best. You know, the other way to think about it, it's good to learn. You know, like it's so. The other analogy I like to give is, you know, it's mm. good to learn how to, uh, you know, fish or swim in your backwaters or you know in your little swimming pool. But then, if you want to fish. You know, you want to fish commercially, you fish mm. in, in big, big oceans. So I think that's part of it. Uh, it's just that we don't have that global scale companies at large global scale companies. We don't have a Procter & Gamble here, for example. Right, Those would right, be a perfect right. example of, uh, or a Colgate Palmolive, right? Yeah. So I mean, some of that is historical, some of that is uh, geographic, some of that is just yeah. the type of companies we have, a whole motley of reasons. But I think the biggest reason is, you know, a small equity market can only afford, you can only get mm. so much. Should be should it's lucky that we have so many of these dividend paying banks, right? I mean that's, um, you know, those are the dividends, be, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what the dividends I, are. I, I, I think look, my my thought on this stock is not miles away from yours. I think to some degree, we I think companies have paid out too much. I think there is the, the ironically because we are more obsessed with dividends than the Yanks, we tend to have paid out more in dividends that give us less room. You know, there are times when Sol Pats has increased the dividend despite making less money because they've got the cash balance, they paid a smallish dividend to start with, you can afford to sequentially increase the dividend slowly over time if you have a long-term perspective. Between self-serving management and demanding shareholders who are saying, well, you could pay me 3% now and keep some in reserve, or you can pay me the full 5% now, empty the, empty the bank accounts, you've talked about that before, um, pay me everything right now, I'll worry about next year, next year. It does strike me that there's that just that simple lack of long-term thinking that the likes of Solpats and Brickworks and others, not many others, unfortunately, have shown that idea of they're, they're here, you know, they're kind of, they're being conservative with that dividend policy so they can continue to increase it. There is that genuine long-term perspective they're taking that the others just simply don't seem to care enough about. I mean, uh, t- take the banks, right? Yes, they've been whacked recently with a whole lot of stuff and maybe they wouldn't have avoided it because APRA said, look, here's the rule. But if banks have been paying 40% of dividends for 25 years, they could have absolutely been dividend aristocrats. But, you know, at the time and maybe maybe even fairly, right? Maybe, you know, if you've got the money, I don't want you to hold the money. I want it back as a shareholder. Thank you. I'll take it. I'll invest it or I'll spend it. Um, you don't get to hang on to it just because you want to. That's not an unreasonable view. Um, but yeah, just it maybe maybe because we are so obsessed, we we don't let management and management don't want to keep that cash and, and run a conservative, slowly slowly increasing dividend policy. We need to pay it all out right now. Um, you know, to hell with to hell with next year or the year after or you know twenty five years time. Let's some other management worry about that. We'll we'll do that later. 
Gotta say too, I'm a little bit surprised. The likes of Woolies and Coles have no excuse not to be dividend aristocrats, do they? I mean, these sort of businesses that are just, you know, they're they're reliable. You know, they're kind of they're almost toll booth businesses. I mean, again, you know, maybe Transurban Sydney Airport and different environments may have been those businesses, I guess. But gee, if you're if you're selling groceries to people every single year, I, I don't I don't know what excuse you've got for not having a more conservative but continually progressive dividend policy. Just because that's the sort of business you are, I would have thought it was best for everybody. That was how you ran your business. Drop a couple of, drop a one percent, one point two percent off your dividend yield, but but have enough cash to pay it out every single year moving forward. Um, I I don't want to put too fine a point in it, but I'd say probably it's to to pass management's. Um, I don't want to blame anybody, but I would have thought you know had they been thinking a bit differently, these stocks may well have been the absolute the the stereotypical dividend aristocrat. Yeah, like I mean, that's a fair point. I, I mean, my only argument would be, I think it's again this this issue of a small market, right? It's like, I mean, what does like if you think about Woolworths and Coles, right? Coles was actually not even an independent company; it was basically part of West Farmers, awesome. and you know, yeah, true, true. you're trying to spin things out and do all those sort of things. <laughs> and and then yeah. you know, if you're Woolworths, you're trying to invest in you know Masters and becoming a Bunnings. <laughs> right. It's it's yeah. all of the issues that come yeah, with yeah. a very small. Uh, total addressable market, right? If you've got a small addressable market, you're going to be making those decisions that you don't need to make in other markets because the market is small. So I think it's just fundamentally, (laughs) in my mind, it's just a small market phenomena. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. Maybe that's true, man. That's true. I, I, I think that's generous, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you be generous to them. It's, it's Christmas. You be generous to Woolies and Coles and West Farmers. Um, mate, so let, let's let's take the other line here. So Jesse's trying to do this financial independent, retire early, buy a lot of stocks, maybe never sell them, maybe retire on the dividends. That's about as far from your investing <laughs> investing approach as it gets. I'm sure you'd like to retire early, by the way, but you're not you're not doing a uh, you know you're not doing it through through dividend paying stocks and trying to retire on the on the yearly income. Um, you you know you would have a different perspective to trying to take a portfolio and then live off it over time. And I'm going to suggest, and I, I, I won't put words in your mouth, but just for the sake of it, um, for you, it's about just getting the maximum capital growth you can over time, conservatively and appropriate, not conservatively, but um, appropriately. Not, not, you know, you're not, you're not throwing Hail Mary passes. Um, and, and then effectively selling small amounts to live off that income instead of waiting for the dividend checks. Is that fair? Well, that, that's maybe part of it, right? But, you know, like, so, so I invest with like a the 10, 10 year plan, for example, right? right? So if I invest in a company now, I don't actually want any dividends for say 10 years right okay. yep. but at 10 year at the 10th year point it starts paying a dividend maybe at 15 year year point mm-hmm. it starts paying more of a dividend but if i have enough shares uh <laughs> and the company is paying a one percent dividend of the share price then yeah that might just be enough right so i'm I, you mm. know in many ways i want to have companies that are eventually going to pay dividends okay because they are going to have they're going to be cash machines in the, of the future. Right, right. And at some point, even the best cash machine in the world doesn't have places where it's going to invest it, yeah, right? Yeah, because, yeah. Right? so you look at an Apple, the best cash machine that you can think of, but mm. at some point it's going to say, well, you know, I can buy back some shares and I can pay you some <laughs> dividend. Yeah, there's not much, yeah. you know, with all those billions that I'm going to generate, there's, you know, I don't need those billions, right? So, yeah. so that's my strategy. My strategy is to find companies that are very prudent with their capital management, very, they, you know, their growth companies right now, at, and at some point they become, you know, uh, dividend payers because they can't spend all the capital or, or the so buyback shares. Either way, it's fine. So at some point you imagine you might actually change your whole investment strategy for as much as you're looking for the fast growers now, 
do, do you foresee a time in 5, 10, 15, 20 years when you say, you know what, there's better places, there's better capital growth opportunities somewhere else when, when Apple is old and grey and there's some other company that could be doing better and, and get better returns. Do you see yourself foregoing those and simply saying, I've, I've had this portfolio now for X years, I've built it over time. I'm literally just going to let it generate income for me? Or do you see yourself selling some of those saying, you know what, I just can't quite not go and chase the next big, the next Tesla, the next Apple, the next, um, pick whatever company you want. Um, you know, do, do you see a time when you, your your strategy changes in, in line with your life stage and, and the gains you've made already? Or, or do you think you'll always be someone who says, okay, well, that's nice. And I, yeah, I'll take the income from that company. Apple's a different business probably because it's a one of a kind. But the, the second tier, whatever the kind of the second, third, fourth best business in the portfolio is, will you be able to resist the urge to say, man, that thing's going to be 10 times the size, but I'll keep the dividends over here? Oh, well, that's a good question. So like, I haven't thought too deeply about it, but here's my how, right. how I think about it, number one. Number one is you in a portfolio, like, mm. You know, let's say I invest in Apple 10 years ago. The Apple 10 years ago, today, Apple today is very different, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think the Apple shares are going to 10 bag from here. It can't, mm-hmm. right? But as long as the market beating, I'm going to keep it because it's good to have some steady, yeah, you, yeah. you know, some portfolio steady, like a core mm-hmm. or, you know, volatility reduce. So it's paying a dividend, it's nice, doing nice. some share buybacks. So that's the way I think about it. And I really, in my portfolio, I try to not have any second tier companies. Like my rule right. of thumb is there there are 10,000 plus equities in the world. Yeah. If I have to buy 30 or 40 of them, they all better be the top tier, the best ones <laughs> that I can find. There's no reason for me to buy any tier two company. There's just, a, right, you know, right, right. Uh, unless I'm doing something, you know, okay, I'm fine, I want to, do, I just don't do it because it just doesn't yeah, make sense. Yeah. Nice. Thank you, mate. Let's move on. That was hopefully that answered your question, Jesse. Um, but, mate, let's move on to a question now from Scott, not this Scott, a different Scott. She goes, hey, Scott and Doc, I know you've addressed trying to predict entering and exiting the index and not being worth the hassle. But I thought with the Tesla S&P 500 debut was worth revisiting. There's historically been volatility behind Tesla, and it could also trigger $100 billion in trades if it jumps to $497, as predicted here. Now, this is an old old question, of course, back on uh, the 1st of December, so things have moved since. I don't want to talk about t- Tesla, Doctor. You're welcome to. What are, so the, the question from Scott, though, was what impact do you think this will have in the market, and is there anything an investor should be mindful of when it comes to index additions or removals? And he says, I note Doc's personal interest in Tesla. Hashtag... Doc on TikTok. There you go, mate. Another, another vote for the TikTok crowd. Uh, you're going to have to at some point in 2021, I think. It might be your news resolution. I'm not sure. Um, so mate, let's, let's, I mean, feel free to mention Tesla if you want, but this is an old question. So let's more talk about indices and, and that sort of stuff. Companies being added to the ASX 200, the S&P 500, the ASX 100, Afterpay, another company with a high-profile business added to the ASX 20, only last week, the week before, uh, depending on when you're listening to this again, <laughs> a couple of weeks earlier than that. Um, mate, your your thoughts on what, how to think about companies that are being added to an index? Yeah, so like, I mean, okay, in theory, uh, an index addition should have minimal to no impact on share price. Right. But but unfortunately, theory <laughs> and practice are, are, practice are completely different things. I, I think this is something <laughs> that people need to realize. Theory and practice are completely different things. So often what happens is, and I'll give an ASX 200 examples, right? The right. moment people start realizing that a company is going to make it into ASX 200 because whatever is the condition or criteria for getting into ASX 200, fund managers start positioning themselves for those trades. Mm. Some people are going to buy it because now this company... So what? Okay. So let me backtrack. One of the things that people need to realize is ultimately, 
share prices in the short term, even in the medium term, is a supply and demand equation, right? right. If, depending on how many people are requesting to buy, how many people are willing to sell, that actually sets the price. Over the long term, of course, it's supposed to track fundamentals, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what happens is, in, in the market, it, there are fund managers and people who manage money with mandates, right? So they'll be mandating, if I'm a fund manager and I can only have companies from the ASX 200, well, if a company's outside ASX 200, they are not going to be actually touching it. But the moment it comes into ASX 200, it becomes a part of their universe. And therefore, they could buy it. Now, some people will notice this and say, well, okay, this can happen. And therefore, what I am going to do is I am going to buy ahead of it. Right. Right. And you could buy ahead of it, and that mm-hmm. you know, it happens all the time. You can notice that these companies <laughs> are going to get into ASX 200, people are buying it, and the share price goes up. Now, sometimes what will happen is, some people are buying with the hope of selling to others. The yeah. In this case, the indexers. And the thing to remember is the index typically buys half an hour or so prior to close of the market, the day they're supposed to be in the index. Mm. Okay, So that's when the index trade happens. So. After that, if there are people who have got excess shares that they want to sell sell off, then you know you might see a pullback, right? So this is, you, mm-hmm. you see a buying and you see a pullback. All of these things are quite natural. It happens almost all the time. The mm-hmm. the magnitude of buying and selling again is a function of how many people are you know willing to buy and how many people <laughs> are willing to sell. Uh, yeah. To answer the specific Tesla question, there uh, the Tesla's thing was is different because it's it's the largest S&P ad edition ever in history. So that makes the total amount of volume, but Tesla is again, highly liquid. The the thing that complicates the, uh, complicated the Tesla's price movements mm. is the fact that there's a high short interest, right? So if, if, if people are short Tesla and say there's a mandate that says, well, you can't short, if I'm a fund manager, you're not supposed to short the S&P 500 top 10, well, then you have to get out of that short, right? So mandates, again, make a difference there. Um, mm. So, the, so that's sort of the thing, you know, uh, if people uh, follow the market on Friday, Tesla got added and in the last 10 minutes, basically the share price went up another 6%. That was largely because of the buying pressure from funds. Um, you know, uh, that's how, how they execute. And now, if I had to make a short-term prediction, I fully expect the shares to, uh, you know, pull back. Because if any of those people with excess shares who didn't want to hold it for the long term are going to sell yeah. that shares, right? Exactly. So, so all of these dynamics, again, very natural. Uh, it It's hard to know exactly the magnitude, although directionally you might know where the direction is going. So again, it's very hard to play it. I never try to play it, but I try to be aware of what I think is going to happen. That's my take. No, so dude, I, I think it's perfect. Scott, I, I've got not much to offer on that other than, as Doc said, the value of, you know, if the market was efficient and it's not, which is Doc's point about theory and practice, then the value of any company, let's call it, you know, Doc Corp, um, if it was worth $100 now and if it gets added to the index in January, it still should be worth $100 in February, assuming the business hasn't changed. The, the fundamental underpinning, the, the value of the company, if you do all the work, whether you do a DCF or just work at the total addressable market, whatever you, whatever you decide, once supply and demand normalizes, you should expect it to be worth what it's worth, right? Now, maybe it's worth $101 because business improves over time and share prices should go up. So I don't want to be too pedantic about it. But generally speaking, to Doc's point, the value of the, the, the objective value of business before and after an index ad should be exactly the same. In the meantime, prices move around all over the joint. And that's the that's the thing to be mindful of. Generally speaking, that what I was a bit surprised actually, Doc, was that growth 
just before it got added, I have to say, the, the, the pre-announcement, you don't get a chance pre-announcement, right? Once the announcement's out, the shares jump almost immediately. There is no trade there to make, generally speaking. The size of Tesla's jump before the ad to the SP was actually surprisingly large to me, given that there was kind of, it wasn't a surprise, there was no, <laughs> no need for it to happen. As you say, it's supply and demand. But just just as you rightly again point out, all else being equal, once supply, don't forget people only buy shares once, right? The index adds the shares once and then it's done. So to some, I mean, other than if people add money to the index or you know add, buy more units, then of course they have to buy more of everything. But generally speaking, um, once that supply demand imbalance goes away, the demand bit should drop off effectively once those trades are made. And so whatever pushed the price up, again, if the shares are worth hundred bucks in DocCorp or whatever company we're talking about, Tesla doesn't matter. Um, the the you know post <laughs> post index ad, the shares should be worth the same. So if you're going to buy at 110, 115 in, on the, in the meantime, just be really, really careful. If you're going to try and play funny buggers and say, well, it's up, so maybe it's up. Now, it must, it must stay up, by the way. Again, sentiment does whatever it does in the short term. Just be careful. Being added to index in and of itself, as Doc rightly points out, shouldn't change the underpinning valuation of any company um, just because of that addition. It changes who might choose to buy it and when. But once those trades are complete, the, the ETFs don't buy them every month, at least they don't buy extra ones every month, right? Once they add 2% of their portfolio to Tesla or where the numbers add up to, they're done. Um, you know, yes, if you add another couple of dollars to the ETF, they've got to buy you know, a small portion of everything, but that would be the same impact on every company, not just a new one being added. So that's important to remember. Just just don't don't follow the trade. <laughs> if the, if the, once the price is gone, um, it may well be that if you jump in later, you run the risk, as Doc says, of maybe the share price falling back. I was just going to quickly add something. So something yeah, I think Sorry, that 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 I've seen is is valuable for people. Mm. So one of the things to realize is long term, the performance of a business is, as Scott said, going to be driven by fundamentals. Okay. Yep. Now sometimes, if you're looking for a single metric to actually drive, and you know, again, I'll, I'll preface that with all sorts of caveats, saying a single metric is never enough. But <laughs> if you want <laughs> yes, to see exactly. a single metric for performance of a company, mm. then one of the things that you can look at is sort of the gross profit growth over time, right? Mm. And, and you know, it, a lot of people out there today are talking about, oh, Tesla's increased, Tesla's that, Tesla's, you know, surprising. Mm. Uh, and, and all of those things are, are true, except what people forget is that the share price for Tesla didn't actually do anything from what 2013 right. to like yeah. 2019. Those six years, it didn't do anything. Yeah. Here's the thing I want to point out though. Over the last 10 years, the gross profit for Tesla, percentage change on an annual basis is 13,000%. Right. Okay. However, only until only uh, until like, you know, this was last Friday's close, mm -hmm. the share prices has gone up only 10,900%. Right. There is still a gap of several thousand percent between those mm -hmm. two. Mm -hmm. Right now, of course, you can make the argument it was over overvalued in the beginning. That's a hard part, over, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, however, I, I think the thing that I think most investors have missed with Tesla mm. is effectively the company was executing for a long time, doing its thing, building mm. a momentum in this, you know, a, a, a sustainable transport, sustainable energy, and it was being heavily shorted by Wall Street and other people who basically were thinking of it in a very, I'd call mind-blocked fashion. Mm. That created, that gave opportunity to people like us who will basically said, okay, I'm gonna look at the fundamentals, I'm gonna think about the company, what it is doing, and then look at this divergence, right? Now, not every divergence works out, but the divergence was so large in 2019, like it was, in my mind, it was one of those trades that people are gonna make where, you know, 
tails you're going to lose some but heads man you're going to win big right so again that's there's some lessons here again you don't get these opportunities that often but when you get it it is to lose it is very shameful <laughs> there you go um i i haven't used gross profit the world i know i know tom gardner our ceo talks about that a bit as well um i've, I've actually not, not that i'm not only a sales investor i certainly don't necessarily buy really buy companies on multiple of sales but um generally speaking if you've got sales growth if uh, I, I, the phrase i use is more relevant to more people over time uh, if you get existing customers to spend more and new customers to start shopping with you or buying from you um that's a pretty good sign your business has something specific about it again as you say mate doesn't guarantee success and certainly if you can have you can have sales growth without gross profit if you're spending more <laughs> to make your product you're selling it for so gross profit is a little bit further down the PL, but the same kind of broad idea that the growing demand and hopefully growing profitable demand at least at a product cost level if your business model is sustainable can certainly lead to, to some great returns i agree okay right. just one more thing oh one more okay. thing this is this is this is <laughs> investing actually a very useful investing lesson because when sure. you're talking i just thought about that so yeah. the other thing to think about is as as a company scales up right so your profits are growing mm-hmm. you're at some point at, at a scale up and i like to th- I, you know in extreme options i talk about we talk about this a lot and in other places we, you know in cloud disruptors we talk about this a lot we call it basically being a scaled up company or are you yeah. growing at scale yeah. at scale though your profits can grow 10 percent so your your sales can grow 10 percent, but your profits can actually grow at a much faster pace right so at scale the divergence should actually start closing yeah. big time yeah because, right right Good point. right because you know so think about tesla right you build your factories if you've spent all this money up front for building your factories all that cost is already in now mm-hmm. you should actually get the benefit of that right so yeah so 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 i think that's again something that people um need to think about is this this leverage the fact mm-hmm. that you get leverage over time at scale is you uh, <laughs> We're that anymore, mate. We may never get off this question, but it's a, it's a good conversation. One of the businesses, and we talk about Kogan, so this goes on another question. Actually, I'll ask the, I'll ask the question just to get out of the way. Um, I had a question from another Scott, believe it or not. So two Scots in a row. Hi, guys. Love your show. Would love you to revisit your top five picks from around the world you did around eight, nine months ago. What went right? And if you would make any changes, Scott, now we are going to do that. We'll do that probably next week, Doc. So um, there you go, Scott. We will do that. Um, I, I say that only because I'm going to talk about Kogan. I just made sense to throw the question in first. Um, one of the things I think, and this might, I'm not sure if this is the Tesla story, Doc. I assume it might be actually, but I, I don't follow it closely enough to know. Um, not that I follow Kogan super closely, but I own the shares and it's local, so I tend to give it a bit more, bit more attention. Um, not only do you get the scale impact where you grow size a little bit and, and profit a lot, but you also get an impact with the Kogan had where you go from being loss making to profitable and then to very profitable very quickly. So Kogan went from losing a little bit of money to making a little bit of money and then another lot of sales growth. It was only, I want to say 10 or 20%. Was only, it wasn't you know phenomenal. It was enough. And all of a sudden you went from a million dollar profit to a $5 million profit, whatever the numbers were, because when you added $10 million of sales, you kept half of that because again, the gross profit thing you've just mentioned, Doc. So not only do you go from kind of meaningful scale growth you know a good bit of sales growth but not phenomenal you can grow profit you know literally three five ten times from those really really tiny levels but it was making a loss the previous year and there is something about um the opportunity to be early enough you don't have to be bleeding edge early but early enough that you get a business that is going from loss to profit to some degree i think and you mentioned kind of tesla going over for six years so i don't know i might be i might be equating these things incorrectly so tell me that i'm wrong um, but just that sense of once it starts to become profitable, I think Kessler, I'm not, not sure if it's officially profitable according to the accounting rules, certainly cash flow positive. Just some sense that 
it, it either it it, it it gets rid of the naysayers. It, it, it you know it all of a sudden it's like oh oh that's making money now, and that was the catalyst for Kogan's growth. A good bit of it. Uh, COVID didn't hurt, of course, but but before that, Kogan was growing quite nicely, and it was just that sense of like a little bit of a loss. Okay, it's loss making. A little bit of profit. Wow, those profit margins are tiny. And then all of a sudden, a little bit more growth and those profit margins start to really come into their own. Just that sense of kind of progress measured on the bottom line that all of a sudden attract a whole lot of extra investors. If you can get ahead of that group, you've got to, of course, you've got to have a company that's going to succeed, right? You can, you can, you can hold a loss-making company for a very long time and not make any money. Um, any, 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 or any thoughts on that? Is that similar to the Tesla story? Any just additional thoughts on on the idea of loss to profit and then not much profit to a lot of profit? Yeah, so so I think those are all bang on correct. So like you know, so one of the re, one of the, the conditions for being part of S and P five hundred is that you have to be profitable on a trailing oh, twelve month basis. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, so that's why that was a, that was one of the biggest reasons why Tesla was not in the S and P five hundred until recently. Tesla has now been. Uh, back to back profitable for what five quarters oh. straight. Um, yeah. So part part of that thing is you know Tesla has engineered the profit. Tesla, mm-hmm. you know, in my opinion, Tesla has engineered the profit um, to be part of S and P five hundred because it's prestigious. Oh, okay. um, yep, yep, Tesla probably could have decided to spend a little bit more and not be profitable, for example. Right, um, okay. But you know, so companies at scale have a lot of levers that they can pull. So that's pre- exactly mm-hmm. right. And, and and as I was saying, right, you know, you're building factories, you're getting to scale you you're bringing model 3 online you're bringing model y online mm-hmm. yeah like so tesla is probably on track to generate about 2 billion dollars of free cash flow this quarter so you know like for all the things that people write about tesla tesla is one of the world's <laughs> cash flow machines right now if you think about 2 billion dollars of cash flow free mm-hmm. cash flow you know 1.5 billion dollars to 2 billion dollars of free cash flow in a quarter um you know csl doesn't generate that well, CSL doesn't. Gen- <laughs> the biggest company in the ASX does not generate that free cash flow in an entire year, right? right. So, uh, you know, people can say whatever they feel like, but you know, sometimes, sometimes saying whatever you feel like, I think basically means you don't make money. That's again a lesson to take home. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, let's move on to a question from, or actually a comment from Chris, Matt, but it's interesting in the context of what we're talking about. I'll just get you to comment on this or maybe we'll just let it go through the keeper. Chris says, G'day, Scott and Doc. I wanted to add, I wanted to add your podcast provides great value from the investing process perspective. Specifically, as Doc and yourself have noted on numerous occasions, it generally makes more sense building stock positions progressively versus all at once. Further, it's great you both reiterate the critical importance of being patient. Though I've invested in individual equities for all over 20 years, these are excellent reminders for me, to say the least. Of course, please feel free to mention my comments on a future podcast. Full on, sirs, he says. Well, thank you, Chris. It's very kind. Doc, um, other than the fact that we you know, both have egos and we like them stroked every now and again, uh, what I thought, I thought it was worth reiterating Chris's point. The, the key one for me here was the excellent reminders thing. Now, you're not a massive Warren Buffett fan. That's fair enough. I'm, I'm, I'm a big, pretty big fan. What It's one of those things people say, well, what, you know, I, I've been to the Buffett, uh, Warren Buffett Berkshire Hathaway AGM, I think four times. And people say, what do you go back for? What, you know, what are you learning that's new? Now, the answer is often not a whole great deal, but the reminders themselves, it's a bit like, a, you know, there's something about, and I don't mean to uh, suggest that Buffett's in, you know, should be a god or anything similar, but it's a bit like going to church, right? The, the, the messages rarely change. Um, you know, there's probably three or four big messages that you hear at a church and they hit the same, variation of the same thing most weeks. 
Buffett's AGM is kind of the same, right? You don't necessarily learn anything brand new because there's not that much new in investing. You get your theme right, you get your idea right, you get your process right, and then just kind of being reminded and sticking with it is a super, super important part of it, right? Intellectually, one thing to know it, to be able to stick to it, to be encouraged to stick with it, to have some support when things get tough, whether it's economically, share price-wise, the market, maybe one of your companies has a, has, a, has a bad six months. Just that idea of just, you know, kind of being constantly reminded and staying with the process, is super super valuable. So um, that was my reflection on it, and thank you, Chris, for the for the thoughts. Um, as you say, not, not not much new to the extent that we've said things before that we'll say again. That's absolutely the case. There aren't that many new ideas, um, but but finding something that works and then just just having the the courage, the support, the conviction, the reminders to stick with it. I, th- I think personally, mate, as we go into twenty twenty one, is super super valuable. Any any thoughts on Chris's comment? Well, I think, you know, thank you is all I can think <laughs> Good enough. Mate, this is one especially for you, mate, only because I don't know the answer to this, so I'm going to kick it to you. This is from Anthony. Anthony says, hello, Scott. I follow your, uh, follow your podcast and the doc religiously. Good man. I'm a member and a subscriber. Thank you, Anthony. I have started looking at some of your US recommendations. I use the ANZ trading platform, but it doesn't give me news and announcements for any US companies. Where is a good place? I can automatically get announcements for the stocks on my watch list. Thanks and fool on Anthony. Now, Doc, you, you follow the US market religiously, so you probably don't need this necessarily. But I got to say, other than I used to use Yahoo Finance years ago, I don't use it much as much anymore. But where can one of our, any of our listeners go to kind of keep t- keep tabs on what's happening with the companies they own? What's the best place for news or announcements, coverage, all that good stuff? You get them on Comsec and ANZ for Australian companies. Where do you find them for U.S. businesses? Well, like if you have a proper U.S. broker, then you would get it from uh, your U.S. broker. So Charles Schwab mm-hmm. has lots of news that you can just basically tick on the news item, uh, right. news uh, bit. You get it. like uh, the easiest thing if you, if if you don't have a U.S. based broker, then is to uh, use the Stocks app on the iPhone. Um, you know, put, put the ticket in, and then you okay. basically get news that comes in. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the other you could build a dummy portfolio on something like CNBC, and then you would get uh, information if you want. Is that um, that made or yeah. the website for CNBC? Uh, this website, I haven't actually okay, cool. checked the app. That's right. Yeah, yeah, no, that's um, right. Yahoo Finance uh, is is another option. Uh, Yahoo Finance, mm-hmm. you can you know, Yahoo Finance has an app. You could use that app to track. So um, that's what I, yeah, I have. So I have a, I have my port, my stocks listed on the Yahoo Finance app. I don't even check it that frequently because I, I my, my US companies generally tend to be big and pretty uh, uneventful. And when the big news is out, I tend to get a report. I've got Disney and Apple and uh, Apple. How am I go? Disney and Amazon and Google and uh, and Berkshire. So there's not that many. Not that hard to keep track of those. They get reported pretty pretty um pretty widely above the fold. But okay, cool. So. Uh, Yahoo Finance, the Stocks app, or CNBC. Yeah, I think those are things. But yeah, there you go, Anthony. Hopefully that will helps. Um, question from Dave Doc, um, and this is kind of a request rather than a, rather a particular. Unless you've got a particular company in mind, Dave says, "Hey Scott, I love the pod. I love the discussion last week regarding Treasury wine estates. I enjoyed hearing the analysis around price valuation. I found this very useful as I continue to develop my knowledge around this point. I was hoping you do this again with another company." to see what you would pay for it at the present point. Any company, really, he says. Not to make a recommendation of any kind, but for educational example, i.e. Amazon is trading at X times my value... Uh, sorry, Amazon trading at X. My valuation is Y based on this basic method. Cheers, mate. Full on. Hashtag full on. 
Thank you, Dave. I like that idea. Doc, we might put our heads together, I think, and try and come up with something to uh, an example to kind of talk about. Because, yeah, we talk about treasury and kind of we mentioned sort of some ways to think about the valuation and the business and all that kind of stuff. So what do you reckon we make that a bit of a New Year's resolution for us to do a couple of times next year? Yeah, I think so. That's a great idea. Nice. I like thank it. You, thank you very much, Dave. Good, good question. Mate. We haven't got anything ready for you, mate, now, but um, definitely one for, the, one for the list. All right, mate, let's go to a couple of questions now from the email. I will give our contact details in a second, but before we do, a question from David. Hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks for your great podcast and straight talking wisdom. Thanks, Dave. Uh, I have a practical question about placing orders for shares. He says, I use Comsec and HSBC mostly. When I place an order for a set number of shares at a set price... How does the market rank me against other investors that place their orders at the same price? Is it first in, first serve, or does volume play a part? Now, he says, if I pick a price above the current market, will the order fill at that price or try to find me the best at-market deal with my price as the upper limit? Lots going on here. In a rapidly rising market, he says, do I get a preference if I pick the at-market option rather than a limit order option or a slightly higher price? I guess I'm looking for insights on how to get the best price in a fluid market situation. And he says, oh, Dave, that's very judgmental. Dave. He says, before you predictably admonish me for short-term trading mentality, I would say I'm a buy for the long-term investor. I just want the best deal possible. Full-on gents from David. Dave, that's okay. We, uh, we agree, mate. We're all about the best deal. Uh, and no, I won't, I won't admonish you for being a trader. I get what you're saying. So Dave's not looking to try and, you know, have some sort of trading strategy here, Doc. He's just saying, look, I'm going to buy the shares anyway. I want to buy them, but I don't want to pay more than I have to. What's the best way? So let's go, th- well, let's go through the, the, the first question first. We'll go into the best way in a second. So if you place an order for a set number of shares at a set price, in other words, a limit order, it's, uh, my understanding is it's first in, first serve, man. Is that your, is that your understanding? Well, it's first in, first serve, but with the caveat that, I mean, you, you know, but your limit price for the buy yes. has to, it'll be, it'll be ordered by the limit price. So if somebody's put a oh, higher yes, limit yes, price, yes, yes. Yes. They will be ahead of you in the That's queue, right. irrespective of when their request came in, right? So it's price order. But at the same price, anyone, anyone who places orders at the same price is first in, first serve. Yeah, first. F- which yeah, which first makes sense, first. right? So yeah. think, think about yeah. it as an auction that you kind of preset your auction. Uh, if you're bidding a higher price, you get preference. If you're bidding the same price as somebody else, the first person to throw their, their bid in, like at an auction, gets the deal. Uh, and then the second person after that, there's more shares available. Of course, it's a, not exactly a pure auction because there's many, many shares being traded, at not just one share of like one house, but same kind of idea. So yeah, Dave, there you go. Um, all right, if he sets a price, of, uh, if he picks a price above the current market, will the order fill at that price or try and find me the best at market deal with my price as the upper limit? That one's pretty simple, Doc. You get, you get, that's the maximum you pay, not the absolute price. So if you want to buy $1.20 and the shares being offered $1.15, you'll pay $1.15. So that, that's, that's pretty straightforward. Here's the question, mate. He wants to get some insights on how to get the best price in a fluid market situation. What do you do to get the best price for your shares that you're buying? So the, my problem with this question is that I don't know what fluid <laughs> market situations mean. So he just um, means when the price is moving all over the joint and you're not sure what the price is going to be. So he's talking about, you know, if a, if a stock is, so he says in a rapidly rising market. So let's say there's some good news out. He wants to buy the stock. Maybe the company's come out with some great news this morning. The price is going up slowly. It's like $1.05, then $1.06 and $1.07, How does he make sure he gets the best price? He doesn't want, he doesn't want to miss out necessarily. He doesn't want to pay more than he has to. Given the in a volatile market, what, what do you do to kind of let's say you want to buy shares in company X? The price is a bit up and down, it's going up, so it's all over the place. How do you think about placing your orders to get the best price? Yeah, so my thing is that I try to decide how much I want to pay okay. in ballpark. 
and I'll try to stick within say ten percent or fifteen percent of that. And I, I wouldn't I wouldn't mind paying fifteen percent more. But you know, rarely do I have a situation where I need to get onto this now. Yeah. <laughs> and otherwise, like you know, my life is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. I rarely get into that situation because, like as I said, I think. Yeah, I don't let the market decide what I'm going to buy. I decide what I'm mm-hmm. going to buy and how I'm going to buy it, when I'm going to buy it. So the market is, you know, I'm not as, you know, I let I let the market serve me. I don't want to be a servant for the market. So that's, nice. you know, that sounds, um, yeah, like sometimes it happens that a certain particular company is on the go, is rising. But, you know, oftentimes if something is rising a lot, either you need to have a very good understanding of why, right? or or else it could just be FOMO because that does happen, right? So fear of missing out, you know, a bunch of people, traders are on it, everybody's buying, so therefore more people are buying yeah. and it's going up. Other people notice it's going up, so they buy. You know, <laughs> it's best, it's it's yeah. best, you have to know what's going on and you have to have an understanding of what's going on to make a decision. I think that's that's the bottom line for me. So Thules, first thing I want you to hear from Doc is he's saying 10 to 15%. So most people, I'm not going to say whether you are or not, David, but think, well, hang on, the price is going from $1.2 to $1.4. Oh, man, should I buy the shares or not? Doc's like, hey, 10 to 15%. Like on a, on a $1 share price, that's somewhere between $0.85 cents and $1.15. So, you know, being – being now, you have to be I'll, – I'll carry this in a second, but, you know, that's that's not trying to pick the cents out of this one. If he wants to buy the shares at about a dollar, if it's $1.5, $1.8, I'm going to say, Doc, my guess is you're going to buy buy at any of those prices – if you want the shares, you think they're worth buying for somewhere around a dollar, that, that range is pretty big for you. And so for dollar five, dollar eight, you're still happy to buy the shares. Is that is that fair to say? I think so, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. So I think that eighty-five to a dollar fifteen, like I mean, if I'm buying something that's gonna, you know, triple, quadruple, you know, right. something like that, and i I think it's gonna deliver me good returns, then I'm I'm okay with that. You know, like fifteen percent is a bit yeah. you know, fifteen percent sometimes is like, you know, more than a year's return, right? But right. And that's going to freak out some people listening, right? Hang on, what do you mean fifteen percent? But as you say, if you're getting, if the growth is there, yeah. this is what I was, this was the caveat I was going to say. The more yeah. growth you expect, the less accurate you can afford to be on the price, right? Like if you're buying, yeah. if something's growing two percent a year, you really, really better not overpay for that because you're never going to get the money back. If yeah. something's going to go up fourfold or tenfold, paying fifteen percent is just literally. I mean, of course, we'd pay less if we could, but if if you think a dollar stock's going to go to ten, quibbling over paying a dollar five or a dollar eight is. It's kind of a bit, and again, Dave, I'm not directing this to you at all, mate. So I know you've, I know you're concerned that I'm going to slate you as a as a trader. Uh, but Doc's very clearly here, guys, saying that you know you 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 want to get the share, you want to get the shares. It's more important to get the shares at at even a slightly higher price than you think you should, if it's going to go up meaningfully. Now, if it's going to go from a dollar to a dollar ten over two years, you better not be paying a dollar eight because that's that's going to hurt you, right? Or a dollar twelve, even worse. Um, so be careful about momentum, as Doc says. But yeah, if if the long term future of the stock is bright enough. Not buying is normally a bigger sin. Oh, normally, yeah, often I'll say not normally. Often a bigger sin than paying too much. Would you agree? Not even too much, but paying a bit more than the market price was a day ago or two days ago. Is that fair, Doc? Yeah, so that's fair. The, the only caveat I'm going to add to that is, you know, what you need to think about is probability of success, right? So yeah. if you think the probability of success is relatively low, then you need to have a different strategy to having probability of success mm-hmm. being relatively high, right? So right, if you think right. that, you know, there's going to be 40% failure, you can't just buy that one company and pay up for it. Yeah. Well, you better buy many more and be willing to make similar adjustments because otherwise what might happen is you just landed up paying a lot more for one company. Mm-hmm. That company actually did not deliver. So you lost a lot more money than you actually should have. So it's a, it's a little bit- 10 or 20 times, you're, you're, not, you're not putting it yeah. on your side, right? 
Yeah, you just yeah, you want to make sure that you know you're buying similar things. And I, I think the other problem is if people mix it when they're doing exactly what you said, right? Because they want to buy the company that's going to give them 10% return per annum, mm-hmm. but they land up paying a lot more for it. Yeah. And and therefore they might have, you know, wiped out a fair bit of, you know, potential gain, right? So you, you just have to be consistent in your mm-hmm. strategy and think about it how how you're executing it. Yeah, nice. I like that, mate. Thank you, David. Good question, mate. Another question from David. Thanks for your hi Scott Doc. Thanks for your great podcast. Great investment ideas and straight talking wisdom. Thank you, mate. Have a question for the podcast. Here we go. I have investments in quite a large number of individual shares and ETFs, all listed on the ASX. I often hear you seeing the virtues of owning individual shares listed overseas. Yep. And I do plan to tackle the overseas brokerage roadblock in the near future. However, I realize that by already holding ETFs such as, and it lists a whole lot of ETF uh, tickers, but effectively they are NASDAQ, FANG, uh, Vanguard, Total World, some sort of S&P ETF, uh, Robo, Hack, uh, lots of them. So he says, basically, I own all these ETFs, which are international share ETFs. By, he says, by, I realize by hold, already holding them, I probably already hold significant exposure to the companies I aspire to hold individually. My question is, my question for you is, do you know of any apps or software tools to make an easy job of working out what exposure I might have based on my ETF and LIC holdings? I know many broker sites will offer a breakdown along sectors, but I've never seen a tool to tell me how many Apple or Tesla shares I actually own in air quotes, indirectly through ETFs. I know I could sift through the PDFs for info for each ETF holding and work it out for myself, but unfortunately I am way too lazy to do that. <laughs> Come on, David. Any thoughts, full on David? Um, everything moves way too fast for this, right, Doc? I, I, I mean, I guess it's possible someone wanted to do it, but um, uh, I mean, indices are indices. If you if, if Apple is four percent in the index, you own that. But when you start to get some of the some of the active ADFs he's mentioned. Uh, I mean, it's, it would be possible to do based on most recently reported numbers, but I don't know anything that actually does that. Do you? Yeah, well, like, I mean, with a little bit of effort. So here's what you could do. So as you, like most of these ETFs, I don't know which, which one, of the, there might be some active ones which might make it very difficult, but. We've got, yeah, there's both. That's unfortunate. He's got, he's yeah, got a, but uh, yeah, go on. You could do like a ballpark. So most yeah. company, most, you could look at the top, say top 10, right? Look at the top 10. Every ETF provider would give you a dump of the top 10, uh, either on a quarterly basis or on a daily basis if they're actually trading in and out of them. And you could just basically on a given day see what your holdings are for those top 10. There might be significant overlap, in which case you'd be able to calculate what you hold. Like, it's still, I mean, there's no easy, easy way out, but other than just doing that, that that's what I think yeah. is... Um, I think the biggest point I'd make is you can get exposure to different companies with, with the caveat being that you it's relatively hard to actually control yeah. allocation by ETFs for exactly these, you know, and, it, you know, and that seems he's where, where he's going, right? You can't yeah. control the allocations. You can control allocation to a strategy, right? So hack, for example, is like cybersecurity. And if you think that that's something that you want to have 20% of your portfolio on it, uh, just hypothetically speaking, uh, yeah, then yeah, yeah. you could do that. But you can't say that I want to have 10% of company A in my portfolio because that's just very hard to do. Yeah, it is, David. And I think it's it's a really cool intellectual question. Um, the reality of it is, I, just, I mean, you're, you're too lazy. Frankly, I'm too lazy as well. I wouldn't even bother thinking about trying to do it. I don't think it really needs to matter that much. Um, to some degree, uh, you know, I mean... 
if you want more of it, buy more to, to increase your weighting to some of these companies. I, I, I gotta say, based on the kind of the look of what you've got, because I mean, you've got some NASDAQ, you've got some FANG, you've got some uh, Vanguard X World, you've got SP 500, like there's, there's so many different proportions of all of those. Um, I don't think there certainly needs to be a problem. I think the, the chance you'll overweight any of those is just so unlikely that I wouldn't worry too much. If you're going to, again, I can't tell you specifically yourself what you should do, but generally as advice, um, you know, I, I don't know, Doc, I can't even, I can't even speculate. What's, what's Apple's share of the ETF? Is it, what, 5 6% of like the SP500, something like that, or is it bigger? It's probably about 10%, right? Right, right. Maybe. So, I mean, yeah, unless, you, unless, you're gonna, unless you're gonna triple your holding in Apple by, by buying a, a, stake, a stake that's as large as your S&P 500 stake, um, you're only gonna be adding percentage points to it. So you might, by buying some Apple separately, you might get 11 or 12 or 13% of your holdings. I assume you're gonna buy other stuff as well. Um, I get your point. I think I would say, look, if you own a whole lot of indices, then assume you got this index share of everything anyway. And so you're really choosing to overweight by individual position. It, it's it's some people who want the kind of specificity it's going to be really really an unsatisfactory answer but if I if I earned you know uh, the an SP500 ETF plus a NASDAQ ETF plus an, a Vanguard all world ETF I'm going to assume Apple somewhere around 8 to 10% whether I take it to 12 or 14 or 13 is kind of largely irrelevant you can kind of assume that your index holdings are one group and I would just add individual positions. Now, if your Apple shares got to be you know, twice the size of the ETF holdings, I guess you've got some other issues to think about. But even in that context, um, if that was the case, your Apple holdings that you own individually are far more important to think about than what the share of it might be on the ETF. Any more on that, Doc? I was just trying to figure out what is the Apple weight uh, of, <laughs> in the S&P 500. Make homework. Uh, Make homework. Actually, I've got the answer, 6.7%. Oh, go. 6.7%. Yeah, so you were, so, you know, so like you a, were close. I mean, if you... If I if I had a, I know five percent of my portfolio was in the was in the ETF, and Apple was six percent of that. Um, what's six percent of five percent, mate? It's one uh, twentieth. It's small. What was it like tiny, right? Anyway, so like to yeah. whatever whatever tiny tiny number that is, it's point four of one percent or something. So, you know, buying more Apple if you like it, you should do, and you shouldn't. It shouldn't. You shouldn't be precluded or, or dissuaded from it because of an ETF holding. I guess is my general view. Would you concur with that? Yeah, like, I mean, I'm a big, like, I mean, if somebody is thinking of buying individual overseas sh- uh, shares, mm. then they should just buy those shares that they um, want to buy. Like, I mean, the thing is that when you're buying S&P 500, you're buying 500 companies. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, which portfolio has 500 companies? No portfolio should have <laughs> 500 right. companies. So exactly. it's exactly. like, it's like buying by 500, right. yeah. by definition, right? So like, I mean, yeah. that's the thing. So, uh, but yeah, if you can't it. do that or don't have the time, inclination, interest, whatever is the roadblock, then what you're doing is fine. Like, you know, that's how I think about it. That's what I do. All right, let's move to the next question from Jason. Uh, Jason asks, is Scott and Doc, a member of Share Advisor, EO and Dividend Investor. Well done, Jason. Thank you, mate. That's super commitment. Appreciate it. Thank you both and to Ed. Well, we don't talk about Ed because he's not on the podcast. And frankly, you know, we're not going to give credit to other people who aren't on the podcast, are we, Doc? No, definitely not. No credit for Ed. <laughs> no, Ed Vesley is the so, is the lead advisor of Motley Fool Dividend Investment. Does a spectacular job with Chris and Kate running that service. So, uh, well done, Ed. Thank you. Um, he's probably listening to this. He, he listens to the podcast because I don't know. He's got to better things to do, surely, but apparently not. He has to listen to us all day at work, and then he wants to listen to us on the podcast. That's a glutton for punishment. But because he does, we'll give you a shout out, Ed. So, uh, mate, I hope you're having a good Christmas break. All right. <laughs> Jason says, I find the different types of companies recommended by these services. Help me with diversification of my portfolio. We like that's part of the reason we have different services, Jason. So nice one. I would be interested in your views of two companies that are not part of your recommendations, Prometicus 
and Tyro Payments. Many thanks for sharing your views and insight. Full on, Jason. Doc, Tyro and ProMedicus, do you have a view? I could share some views on Tyro. Um, ProMedicus, you know, I've never looked at it. Well, actually, I should mm-hmm. preface. I've looked at it, and uh, every time <laughs> I look at it, I feel like it's uh, overvalued, overextended, then it becomes even more overvalued. So maybe I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> so I've come to the conclusion I have that, that maybe. So maybe I've come to the conclusion that, you know, maybe there's something wrong in the way I am doing the analysis of the company. Um, and then because I'm doing something wrong, I've sort of you know, given up, which is uh, it's probably the wrong thing to do. But sometimes, you know, you're like, okay, I don't get it. Uh, but yeah, it's a fantastic company. I like the company. And I have always felt at different points in time that the valuation seems stretched. Um, but then it becomes even further stretched. But, you know, so, you know, it's a question of figuring out what's going on there. Uh, and so on. So that's my thoughts on ProMedicus. Um, we actually do have it recommended in uh, in other services. There's at least one service where it's recommended. Maybe uh, actually Ed <laughs> might have a view on this. And if yeah, Ed is exactly, listening, exactly. Uh, so uh, you know, maybe he can ask Ed uh, via some forum, um, you know, uh, to get his answer on that one. <laughs> With respect to Tyro, like I actually think that the the sort of merchant acquiring business. So where by merchant acquiring, what I mean is, mm. you know, basically merchants have FPOS machines. FPOS machines are the are the conduit through which payments are happening. Digital payments are happening for for money, uh, uh, not yet bitcoins, but for for money. So. Mm. I think that business is very attractive. One of the things, because again, it's one of those businesses where you put a little machine and you basically mm. are clipping a ticket on the amount of dollars that are flowing through, right? And and so yeah. it has got, yeah. it's got a, it's got a bit of, uh, it's heavily reliant on what the economy is doing, right? Mm. Uh, mm. So if the economy is, you know, going gangbusters and a lot of dollars are flowing through the economy, then these this sort of business makes money uh, mm. a lot more. A couple of things to think about here. Tyro has traditionally had a strong hold on certain uh, types of businesses, like, for example, uh, uh, doctor surgeries, general practices, dental surgeries, uh, you know, and then that sort of thing. So those are traditionally tended have tended to be recession reliant, uh, resilient businesses. So that's good. Um, It's been growing share in that space, which is good. but we also have to realize that it's competing against many other people in sort of the merchant acquiring front, right? So it's competing against yeah. banks. So you would see, you know, CBA has this beautiful terminal that is used for payments. And then, you you know, there are post terminals. Right? Post- I quite like the idea. I'm not sure whether it's a, a bit, you know, too much, but I'm not sure if it's kind of, it seems pretty cool. Yeah, it seems very cool. But what, what I'm saying is that every business has an FPOS yeah. and some businesses yeah. have multiple FPOSs. <laughs> then there is Square and others with their own little thing. So there's like hundreds of this PayPal and all these lots of mm-hmm. different types of FPOS acquisition. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, and then there's, you know, the other ways of paying like afterpays and so on, right? So, so, so yeah. many different ways of paying. This is one of them. Question really in my mind is how big can this business get and are you paying, you know, what's the growth? and so on and so forth. Now you're paying too much for sort of the future growth. That's a valuation question. Um, I don't have a specific answer, so to speak, but it looks like like there's a fair amount of growth baked into the the shares right now. Um, Maybe it'll deliver on that. I don't know. I like the business. I like payments business as such, uh, Mm -hmm. but I'm not, I don't know. I don't have, you know, it's not a recommendation of mine. Um, So, that, that's, I'll leave it at that. Can I? Are you? I don't know the answer to this question. 
I, I, I'm skeptical of... Bit, well, here's the problem with disruption, right? Disruption is seems unlikely till it happens. And then everyone looks back and goes, oh, of course that was going to happen. But there's also a whole lot of disruption that doesn't ever really happen because it just never gets traction. So there's kind of, you know, there's two there's two futures for every disruptive business. There are those that, you know, LaserDisc, I always use just because it's a bit of fun. It was supposed to be the new, the new thing in recorded music and video and never went anywhere. Um, there was Blu-ray and there was HD, DVD, and Blu-ray took over, HD didn't take over. You know, there's, there's lots of different versions of futures that might have been. I can't for the life of me work out why, if you think about... Um, uh, Tyro, I, I can't for the life of me think, work out why a bank would want to let a third-party provider get between it and its customers. Like I know banks want to make money from their FPOS terminals, and maybe that's maybe that's just maybe it's just a you know the large calcified siloed businesses. But I can't for the life of me work out if you're a CBA customer, why is a CBA tied you up with their own terminal? Why are they? I would say letting you because they're, they're not you know they can't stop you, but. I just can't work out why, if you're any of these guys, you would willingly let someone else's network get between you and the customer. Just, and maybe you have to do it for nothing, but it secures the customer. I just, I can't. It just it always seems strange to me that there isn't even a market opportunity for Tyro, given given where the customers, you know, could sit, would sit. Now Square's a bit different, right? Because it's a, a whole new technology. It's wireless. The, the tech, the the hardware is cool. So I get that. I just don't get Tyro's place in the market i don't get why the banks haven't shut it out again not not collusively not any competitively just like how, how do you let a circumstance arise where a customer says no thanks i won't use my, my cba machine or my anz machine i'll use the tyro machine instead am i missing something yeah, no like i mean i think you've answered it yourself a little bit of the calcification a little bit of the fact that it's a different business unit versus you know the okay. the business banking unit which is which is setting mm-hmm. up the bank account i mean otherwise you think oh you're setting up a business bank Bank account. Here's the FPOS terminal that comes with it free, right? And uh, and 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 where you go. So I mean, that I think that's sort of the reason calcification, different units. Um, sometimes it's also just better uh, accounting. Like so, for example, if you want to see what's flowing through, how much you're paying, if it just makes it easier for you, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to keep track of that. Better integration with other things. So, for example, if you're using. Um, a software for you know typing out your receipts or making your yeah. receipts if it integrates but so all of the little little things like i mean yeah okay but but for all the reasons exactly that you stated right which you basically what you're basically saying is a super competitive field and uh, you mm. know one would think in an ideal world that the banks would shut these guys out of and not not you know as you know by by a competition right and yeah well, exactly i wish for, we were thought so Anyway. <laughs> but but for exa- but for exactly those reasons, this yeah, yeah. is yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a, that sort of market where the the, yeah, no, the addressable market is relatively small, yeah. right? It's ANZ. You have all these players, the incumbents, and so many others. Mm-mm-mm. You're all fighting for share, so you better pay a good price to buy. A, even if it's a good business, what you want to pay is a good price because if you pay a good price, there's only there's a ceiling. This is not like this is not a to the moon type of market, <laughs> yeah, right? True. <laughs> right, right. This, it's. I mean, I guess if you've got to, um, a, new, a better mousetrap sometimes can work, right? I guess, I mean, Square is going to make a, a, a role for So if you haven't used the Square terms, you will see them around. Um, so I mean, um, there's something that is disrupted, and I guess it's big enough. I mean, if you're if it's your own business and you're only going to make, you're only gonna, you're only going to make 100 million rather than a billion, you'd still take it. But it does, I, I'm not sure whether I'm more surprised that there's an opportunity there or that someone else thought it was worth pursuing because you kind of think, if you said to me, you know what I think I should do, I think I'll take on the banks with payment technology. I think I would have said, really, like of all things you could do. That being said, Tyro's it's successful, it's profitable, it's listed. Um, I mean, it, you know, it, it's doing the thing I wouldn't have thought possible. So maybe, maybe I'm the I'm the greater fool. 
Yeah, I'm not saying anything about that. I, again, as I said, I, I'm, <laughs> Thank I'm, you. La- I'm, I'm just largely in line with you in terms of saying, well, you know, it's a competitive market and, you yeah, know, maybe they're yeah. doing something better than others, but it's just very competitive. It's very, very competitive. Yeah. So I will, I will say, Jason, too, mate, um, and you, you probably know this, but for anyone listening, uh, it, you don't have to buy everything. If you don't know the answer, just, just give it a miss. Um, you, maybe Tyro is the best thing since sliced bread. Maybe Prometicus is. Maybe neither are. Um, it's okay, and it's okay to miss some winners, and I think... You know, you can't let greed or envy. Otherwise, you buy everything, right? There are people who buy every biotech and every miner just in case one of them does well. The problem is, on average, they don't. That's that's you know, for every you know, it's like like lotto, right? Just because someone wins lotto doesn't mean it's a great idea to it's a great investment to buy tickets. Um, do it if you want to, of course, but uh, you know, just because there are winners, you should, shouldn't buy everything. So if you don't know, you're not sure. Uh, feel free, as we are in this case, to simply give it a miss. Look, I don't know. Maybe it does well. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, we don't have an edge. We don't have a, a particular insight. We don't have a high degree of confidence. We're going to be right on this one, so we're simply giving it a miss. Um, I'm with your Pro Medicus too, Doc. Just to finish Jason's question, it's a um, it's doing really well share price wise. Uh, seems to sign up a lot of customers. It's it it looks crazy expensive to me. Um, now, as you say, other other people in the fool, including Ed, like it more than I do, and that's great. Um, and look, the share price is going well. I again, it's the same sort of example, right? Like something valued a hundred times earnings will eventually do really really well, and that'll be the one that got away. Um, there'll be plenty that, that don't do well, and you look at it and go, oh, thank goodness I missed that one. I have no idea which one Premedis is going to be. It's just simply too hard for me. I don't see. I think it's a it's a long part to get to the valuation, but I'm not ruling out the chance it possibly gets there. Al Lewis, mate, I reckon for this post Christmas mailbag edition, should we uh, go and get stuck back into the cricket? Virtual cricket anyway, because it is the 21st of December. But we'll work with this. Oh, it's gravy day. Happy gravy day, mate. This is this is the day for those who don't know who. Uh, well, again, we're recording this on the 21st. You won't hear it till the 27th, but it's the day mentioned in Paul Kelly's famous Christmas song, "How to Make Gravy." So, if you're a fan, uh, I'm going to indulge in a bit of "How to Make Gravy" after this one. Uh, so, happy gravy day again, belatedly for those who uh, who who like the song. Uh, if you're looking to get in contact with us. Uh, please do. We love hearing your questions, comments, and feedback. As I said, we have got heaps, which is great. So we're going to have another mailbag next week. We're not going to leave you without a podcast episode during the summer break because, you know, if you're silly enough to stick with us the rest of the year, then we think we should do the right thing by you over summer. So we will continue to bring you podcasts and we will have another mailbag edition. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, jump on the socials. That is the best, most fun way to have an interaction. So jump onto Twitter. I'm at TMF Scott P. Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. And The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Nice and simple. If you're on the gram between taking photos of uh, your food and following influences and things that you're supposed to do these days on uh, on, on Instagram, I um, can I tell you, by the way, Doc, the whole Twitter stories thing leaves me cold. I hate the idea. Anyway, big tangent. Instagram, at TMF Scott P, at The Motley Fool AU. And if you're on Facebook, at The Motley Fool Australia, or it's not at, but you know, facebook.com slash The Motley Fool Australia. Uh, or the facebook.com slash Scott Phillips money. You can get in touch with us. And if you want to use the old school email, you can also do that. Info at fool.com.au is the way you can get in touch with us and get some uh, get some podcast goodness flowing our way so we can answer your question. Uh, we like to we like to do the right thing, so we'd like to do that for you. Mate, um, this is our last podcast for 2020. Can we say good riddance? Is that is that fair? Hey, you you want to say that? Maybe. I'm, I'm <laughs> mate. I'm more than happy to get rid of 2020. I, I, 2020. Well, I don't. I don't want to jinx it by saying 2021 can't be worse. I was about to say it. And I stopped myself because I don't want to be responsible for a, a worse 2021. But man, 
we started the year with bushfires. We're finishing the year with a you know, second wave of COVID in, in Greater Sydney. Um, so much happened in between. It's been a heck of a year, hasn't it? I have thoroughly enjoyed doing the podcast with you this year, mate. So thank you personally um, for spending your time with me for a couple of hours every week uh, putting this podcast together. It's been an absolute ball. I've learned some things. I've had We've had some laughs. We've uh, helped our listeners out, we hope, a few times uh, with some good information. But we will be back in fine form and fine fettle in 2021, mate. We'll pick up where we left off, hopefully a better year ahead. But in the meantime, until 2021... Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.